take it away, y'all. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character and a great story. I'm Todd Mack. I'm Joseph Ferowski. How are you, Joseph? I'm good. We, uh, listeners, peek behind the curtain. We just recorded a quick cast for our patron subscribers, or Patreon subscribers, about Batman versus Superman. Todd and I are still dealing with some raw emotions about that. <laughs> if you want to hear our take on it, uh, if you are a patron at any level, you get you'll get all of our quick casts, ones that we've already done, ones that we plan on doing. Those will appear in your feed. So even for a dollar a month, you could get things like our uh, much longer than expected discussion about Batman v Superman. Yes. So uh, <laughs> there's that. There's that to look forward to. <laughs> yes. Uh, but that's not what we're talking about right now. This this episode, we are talking about Jessica Fletcher from the television series Murder, She Wrote. And we're going to be discussing the 12th episode of the third season, The Corpse Flew First Class, which was written by Donald Ross and directed by Walter Grauman. And Jessica Fletcher is played by the inimitable Angela Lansbury. Oh, man, she's great. Mrs. Potts. I mean, she's always Mrs. Potts to me, but she's so amazing. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. This is the story of Jessica Fletcher... Uh, she's a novelist. She writes murder mysteries and uh, solves an uh, enormous okay. amount of murder mysteries, uh, real life ones in the process. <laughs> and uh, she's flying on a plane and there's a man who's dead in first class with her and she helps to solve the mystery. If that sounds interesting to you, you can watch Murder, She Wrote, Murder, comma, She Wrote uh, on Netflix or you can pick it up on Amazon and we'll have links in our show notes for that. Yeah, the the entire series is available on Netflix, and um, well, we'll talk about it in a moment uh, how we how we came to this. Uh, and we just remind you that today's our podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. You can get a free audiobook download and a thirty day free trial at www.audibletrial.com/protagonist. They have over one hundred eighty thousand titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player. If you still have one from nineteen ninety. When this came out, <laughs> and um, well, back into the eighties, Todd. For <laughs> oh yeah, this this is season three, so it would have been like what eighty nine. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. And another way to support our podcast is to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and become a a patron. And this month is the month to do it because this is our special discount promotional month. If you are new. And you donate three dollars a month instead of our usual five dollars a month limit. You can buy a topic for us. You can get Joe and Todd to talk about anything. Almost. Yeah, <laughs> and anything family friendly and a protagonist. <laughs> and if you are an existing donor and you increase by one dollar a month, you are guaranteed one new topic. If you're an existing donor who's already bought a topic past that five dollar mark, and you increase by a dollar, you get two new topics. Yes, so now's the time, uh, listeners, if you've really been wanting us to talk about, uh, you know, the film version of Howard the Duck. Oh, <laughs> gosh. I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to go ahead right now and say not no. a great character, not a great story, and not, fam and not family friendly. It's <laughs> oh, bad well. stuff, Joseph. <laughs> that was a George Lucas film. I know. Oh, man. Uh, so this, uh, murder she wrote, um, uh, we've got some trivia here. So, uh, international treasure Angela Lansbury moved from England to the United States in 1940. This is amazing. Uh, 
uh, to escape the Blitz and appeared in her first film in 1944, which she received, for which she received her first Academy Award nomination. Uh, she had to wait for her second nomination uh, until she appeared in her second film. The next year. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, this series, Murder, She Wrote, Murder, comma, She Wrote, <laughs> uh, ran for 12 seasons and 264 episodes. Um, after its 12 seasons, there were uh, four TV movies made and one short-lived uh, spinoff series called The Law and Harry McGraw. Great title for a series. The Law and Harry McGraw. I mean, it's uh, not really, but I just like it. <laughs> During its heyday, it averaged uh, 26 million viewers a week, which is just barely more than we have uh, listeners for this podcast. <laughs> uh, and, welcome, all of the Murder, She Wrote viewers from the 1980s yes. and 90s to listening to this podcast. And Angela Lansbury was nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Lead Actress for all 12 seasons of this show. She was nominated 11 times for Golden Globe Award for Best Performance by an Actress, and she won four times. Uh... So yeah, we, uh, I, I had not realized how successful this show was until I started doing some research. Yeah, nor had I. And I guess that gets into the how did we come to this show? Todd, <laughs> have you ever watched an episode of Murder, She Wrote before I, today? I don't think that I have ever watched an entire episode of Murder, She Wrote. I knew of Murder, She Wrote because my dad likes murder mysteries. And I'm sure that there were times when he was watching it and I was in the room. Uh, but actually he was even more of like a Perry Mason guy, but I knew of murder. She wrote, uh, and I would put it in the same, I would just lump it with, uh, Perry Mason, Matlock, um, <laughs> listeners, if any of you want us to talk about Perry Mason or Matlock, this is the month, <laughs> this is your month <laughs> when you can buy us that topic. Uh, yeah, I had never actually seen an episode of murder. She wrote until today. Uh, I was aware of it only because of ads, uh, both for, I'm sure, original episodes on CBS, and I'm sure it was in syndication. And I see ads. That was it. That was my only exposure. I think I was scared of it. I, I have, I have like uh, images in my mind of scary scenes from Murder well, She Wrote. Well, after this episode that we watched for today, our only episode <laughs> we viewed, Todd. <laughs> will Will you ever fly first class the same? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we're gonna talk about this first class too. Um, Ooh. I, I I do have a quick question. Uh, 26 million viewers. What's a successful show getting today? Okay. Well, or, uh, we need to acknowledge that things have fractured a lot in the last two decades in terms yeah. of options. And so, um, NBC was canceling shows that had over 20 million viewers after like five episodes in the nineties, um, uh, for their, for their must see TV block. Like if, they, you know, they that was the most watched night of television on any network in history uh, at this point, and will likely never be replicated. And they usually had like an anchor show at eight, an anchor show at nine, and the ones in between would be uh, sitcoms that they were trying out. And then ER was on at ten o'clock. And those anchor shows, or the ones in between those anchor shows, which were like Seinfeld, Friends, Frasier, were all anchor shows. Uh, sometimes they'd have <laughs> I over you meant like. Shows with a news anchor. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's just how they refer to it. Like, these are anchoring the night. Uh, the shows in between were often, like, shows they were trying out, and they'd get sometimes 20 million viewers, and they'd get canceled um, because that wasn't enough for that night. Um, and so today, like, I, th I think the number one show on TV is Big Bang Theory, and I want to say it's, like, 18 million? Is that... Wow. I, I'll check. That. All right. Our producer manager is going to double check the viewers for that. That's the, the high watermark right now. This season in 2016 is big bang theory. Okay. Um, but I know like when the office launched, I want to say like it's first season, it was getting like 2 million viewers. 
Like, wow. like I think four or five million is, is considered pretty good, pretty successful. And also, I mean, amongst the things that we need to talk about when we talk about ratings is uh, the reported ratings tend to be live ratings, and a lot of people are doing what's called uh, time shifting viewing, where oh, they DVR yeah. it and they watch it later, and that does not get recorded as oh, really? far as. Oh, well, you can find it more now than even a year ago where it's okay. called, uh, DVR plus viewers. Okay. Um, but up to like a year ago, they weren't counting that at all towards the ratings total for a show. Interesting. Because the ratings, it's not to trumpet how popular something is, it's to set ad rates. And DVR viewing doesn't really help with the ad rates because right. people DVR to skip the ads. <laughs> um, but, even, you know, with all of that, 26 million is pretty solid. <laughs> yeah. Uh, even for the 80s and, and early 90s, that would have been, I'm guessing, a top 20 show. We could we could try and double check that. But yeah. yeah, it was one of, I think it was eight. Okay, yeah, so top 10 show on television. And then uh, and then at the very end, um, they moved its time slot from Sunday night to Thursday night. Mm-hmm. And then it dropped to like 52. Which still isn't awful. <laughs> in its last season. <laughs> I mean, by then, fifty-two. There, there were a lot more shows than there were in the in the eighties. Like, if you start to track like history, like Cheers was famously the least watched show on all of television its first season, but it was like number really? seventy-seven because there were only seventy-seven shows <laughs> on, on TV at the time. <laughs> wow! I have oh, producer Andrew has some facts. I have some facts. Uh, so apparently, uh, Nielsen has adjusted their viewership system to do a live plus seven rating. So all the viewers who watched it live or within seven days after on the time shifted viewing. And so big bang theory on its most recent number one, you know, best stuff has about 24. Okay. So it's approaching that. Okay. But that, that takes a whole week of viewers to get, whereas murder she wrote was doing same night. Yeah. And, and, and that's their biggest episodes. And that's a pretty recent development. They've started to do the plus seven. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. So big show, Murder, She Wrote. I'm, I don't know how I never watched an episode until today. I don't, I can't, I don't either. Because <laughs> it was kind of, yeah, I, I liked it. Uh, like if we're just going to say our first reactions, it was kind of a charming show. <laughs> yeah, I, I would. I think charming is the right word. All right. So are we on to the big spoiler synopsis? Then? The time has come. All right. Lay it on us. A woman named Sunny Greer, who is played by Captain Janeway from Voyager. Yes. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up. Yes. Uh, takes an incredible piece of jewelry out of a safe deposit box and puts it on. She is planning a trip to London for a royal gala, is how I've always said it, but they keep saying gala, right? Is that which? Gala? Gala? Oh, no, they say gala. Yeah. Oh, like, please. Don't let, don't, let's don't start this. <laughs> All right. Don't start that again. So then uh, she hands the jewels to Leon, who at first I thought was her bodyguard, but later on she's called her chauffeur. But she gives the jewels to her employee for safekeeping. And then after the banker leaves the room, Sunny kisses her employee quite passionately. After Greer, I want to use the word escort, but I know that that's not the right <laughs> word for this. Yeah, were you a little, like, trying to figure out what his role was for a while? Uh, yeah, I mean, he's sort of the man that the takes man care servant. of her needs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. he's her manservant. Yeah, her Alfred. <laughs> yes. So, uh, after Greer and uh, Leon leave and they get into a car to head to an airport, we see a man at a corner payphone, which kind of quaint that there was a corner payphone. 
<laughs> Which isn't Not even mentioning the the, the, uh, the 80s garments that you see walking by the, <laughs> the quarter payphone in the background. Yeah, this is not the first or the last <laughs> um, sort of quaint 80s thing that we'll see yes. here. Uh, but he calls someone and says, uh, you know, he's, they're going to the airport right now. He's reporting on her movements and he, he says he's been doing this for a week, but they've never noticed him doing it. And then we go to a, a swanky airport lounge where a paparazzo suddenly rushes up to snap a picture of Miss Greer. And in doing this, he makes Jessica Fletcher drop an hors d'oeuvre. Uh, and then Greer's, uh, again, this is maybe why I thought he was a bodyguard. He grabs the camera guy and he pulls the film out of the camera and he manhandles this yeah. guy out of the room, drags it right out. And then we see Jessica Fletcher apologizing to a charming British man named Errol Poxen, right? Poxen? Is that how he says it? Poxen? Uh, and she, she apologizes because when the, the camera guy ran up, the paparazzo ran up, she bumped him. Uh, and so then they have a, a nice little chat and it's, a, it's kind of a charming conversation. He says he's returning to England after vacation in the States and she's leaving the States for a vacation in England. Um, though she's also going to be going there to research a murder from the turn of the century. And, uh, when she says this, he recognizes her as an author and, um, says that he knows she was researching at his offices a couple of years ago. And she says, Oh, you must work for Scotland Yard. And he says, he's been there for 25 years. And then he goes and kind of flirtatiously says, why don't I get us a couple of sherries? And so he goes to do that. And while he does this, Jessica looks the room over and we see all the people who are going to be flying in first class and all of them behave just oddly enough to be suspicious. <laughs> and then on the flight, an incredibly spacious first class cabin. I mean, this thing is amazing. Uh, we see Jessica sitting next to a desperate Hollywood producer who wants her to work on a script he's disappointed in because he realizes she's a writer. And the script is called Off-Road Aliens, The Second Coming. <laughs> I really like this guy. Yes, he's a lot of fun. Uh, meanwhile, there is a lady who refuses to let her knitting bag be stowed overhead. And then uh, Greer's bodyguard or, or chauffeur, Leon, he's a hot, sweaty mess. <laughs> And he is uh, trying to get a jammed Walkman to play a cassette tape. And his brow <laughs> is just dripping with sweat. And he's beating this cassette tape trying to get so it to play. Uh, and he's having a bit of a panic attack, all this. And and uh, Miss Greer says, like, it's it's this is as safe as driving. He says, well, then why don't we just drive to London? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then the flight is in the air. And he gets up. Uh, the bodyguard or, or the chauffeur, he gets up to go to the bathroom and he bumps into another passenger and they kind of do a little awkward dance of the aisle. And then after we, we get a couple of shots of passengers that are luxuriously reclining and drinking cocktails and smoking in the smoking section, you know, two rows back <laughs> from the non-smoking <laughs> section. <laughs> and then we also see like a distracted stewardess who's serving the wrong drink. So there's, there's a few people that are behaving a little oddly uh, through this. Um, the, uh, Leon, he returns to his seat and he pats his pocket telling Sonny like, Oh, don't worry. The jewel's still safe. I've still got it right here. And then while dinner is being served, this distracted stewardess gives Jessica Fletcher the wrong drink or the wrong wine. Um, and then Jessica's kind of unimpressed with the in-flight movie, <laughs> which just seems to have some generic action shots being shown on a screen. It's 80s police cars, like <laughs> running through barriers and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and she, so she gets up, she wants to go to use the bathroom, but she hears someone shaving in the bathroom. Like she hears an electric razor going <laughs> in the bathroom and a guy comes out and rubs his cheeks and he's like, Oh, well, I'll fresh and clean. Uh, and then, <laughs> um, Greer gets up and she goes up the spiral staircase to the dinner lounge off a floor from the first uh, class cabin. This plane is so cool. 
It is a spiral staircase right there. She just goes up and it's a dinner lounge. It's yep. amazing. And up there, there's a Dr. Cliff Strayhorn who chats with her. Uh, and he asks if she's going to be wearing her famous necklace at the gala. And uh, he offers to buy the necklace from her, saying he's looking for an investment in jewelry. But she says, no, it's been in my family since Bunker Hill. Did we say how much uh, this necklace is worth? It's coming up here in a moment okay. here. Good. Um, so then the, the, uh, the captain asks everyone to please buckle their seatbelts because there's going to be a little bit of turbulence. Um, uh, and while buckling her seatbelt, the knitter knocks her bag off of her lap and her husband grabs it and tells her to be very careful. And she says, don't tell me to be careful. This was all your idea. I never should have let you and Bert get me into this. And then a stewardess goes by and she asks Leon to, to buckle up, but she realizes that Leon is not asleep. Leon is dead. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and she screams and cut to commercial. <laughs> and Just tell me that's not the first commercial break because this has been a long lead no, up. No, there's, there's been a couple here. <laughs> there, so, but, but, uh, but we should point out, this is a very long lead up to a murder in a, in a murder show. Yeah, usually the like, murder is the, found, credits. the body is found pre-credits. Yeah. Yeah. And Joseph has a dream of being met. Yes, this is, I mean, I, I was, I checked the timestamp on it and it was like 20 minutes into a 45 minute show. A 45 minute show. Yeah. That we finally get a dead body. Like, yeah. come on, people. Give us Produ- a dead body. <laughs> <laughs> producer Andrew. Oh, well, also, uh, I, I guess, well, producer Andrew mentioned one of my dreams is to play the, the person who finds a dead body at the start of a crime <laughs> show. <laughs> That's all I want. I from think Hollywood. you've mentioned that before. <laughs> I don't want to be the lead of anything. I just want to be the person who finds just a dead a cameo. body. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also this, uh, the show started with like a teaser reel, uh, on Netflix. Like when you hit play, it says like this week on murder, she wrote, and it shows a couple like clips for the show. And, and one of them is uh, like the, the dead body. So you're just waiting for the dead body. Yeah. One of the things that I read is that that was, that's how all of these shows start. Mm-hmm. So they show you what's going to happen before it happens. Yes. Yeah, so kind of like a movie trailer. Um, but it, uh, so I said it showed the body, I guess it really showed a dead hand. So you didn't know who was going to be killed or anything like that right. in the teaser. So we now, we come back from commercial and everyone from first class, even though turbulence and the buckle seatbelt light is on, uh, there's a couple questions about how this plane's functioning <laughs> here. They're, they're all, bo- they're all crowded around the body and Dr. Strayhorn, he's come down from that lounge and he says it must've been a heart attack or a stroke or something. Uh, Greer is all broken up and she's confused about how he could have died. And the captain asks that nobody leave first class because there's no need to let the riffraff get panicked <laughs> by knowing that there's a dead body on board this flight. <laughs> Everybody in first class, just stay here. We yes. don't need anybody else on the plane to know that there's a dead person. Exactly. We'll just, we'll just let them continue with their cramped legs and their <laughs> and their soft drinks. And their their they probably their their staircase probably isn't even spiral. <laughs> so uh, back just, then, you know that even in coach they were eating nice meals. Oh yeah, like the the dinner service is amazing. Yeah, and everyone would have been dressed in suits and ties, and <laughs> I just love the smoking nice section. That's two rows back. <laughs> so uh, Jessica Fletcher she comforts uh, Greer and she asks if uh, Leon was always so stressed and Greer says no he's only just nervous about flying a psychiatrist made him a relaxation tape and that's what he was trying to listen to on his 1980s Walkman and that's why he got so upset when it wasn't working I don't think she calls it a 1980s Walkman (laughs) she didn't (laughs) know suddenly she remembers her jewels and so she stops the gurney from being taken 
to somewhere off screen, I guess. Cold storage to the <laughs> like freezer. They, they've got a gurney loaded up in first class and they're not supposed to leave first class. I don't know where they're supposed to be going with this body, but she runs over and she, uh, paws the dead body and discovers that the necklace is not in the pockets. And then there's a very loud conversation ensuing in which people talk about how this necklace is worth two or three million dollars and everyone in the first class is looking suspicious. Uh, and then Greer says, this must not have been a heart attack. Someone must have killed him to get to the necklace. And then uh, Fletcher's flirtatious friend from the lounge, he reveals that he's with Scotland Yard. And so he stands up and says, I've got this. Uh, but before <laughs> he's got this, he wants Jessica Fletcher to help him out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because he's a little nervous about things. Uh, so, um, wait. Quick question. Yeah. Like, not to spoil the spoilery synopsis. Was he killed by a bee? Did someone hold a bee next to his neck? No, he was not. Because I saw an episode of Poirot once. Well, uh, that was on a plane. Uh, well, this is very uh, Murder on the Orient Express, like the you know yes. the, okay. the limited pool of uh, suspects. The suspects, right. you know, it's one of these people. Well, that's what they were again, doing in no that one, episode of Poirot. No one yeah. from second class could possibly have done this because we don't <laughs> allow them here. <laughs> So, um, immediately inspector pokes in, asks if anyone, uh, who would have known that the necklace was even on this plane. And Greer says, well, Dr. Strayhorn knew he talked to me about it up in the lounge, but then Jessica Fletcher says, you know what? I, even I read about this in the paper <laughs> and I don't care about celebrity culture. So if I saw this in the paper, anyone could have known that you were going to be flying to London with the jewels, uh, to go to a gala. Polkson says that we're going to have to search first class cabin. If we haven't found the necklace by the time we land in two hours, we're going to have to have Scotland Yard detain everyone. And Fletcher volunteers to help, and he really appreciates that. And then this jeweler stands up, and he says, you know what? That necklace is really too well known to be sold, so the thief is going to have to sell each diamond individually on the black market. And then Pokeson says, that's really good information. Why don't I search you right now, jeweler man that knows how to get rid of this? <laughs> and while he's doing that, Fletcher goes up the spiral staircase to check the body. So I guess the gurney was taken up the spiral staircase, though I don't know how, how that Maybe was done. Maybe have an elevator. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, and when she looks at the body, she notices that there's a bluish tinge under his fingernails, and that means he was poisoned. Uh... So Fletcher asks for the seating chart, and... The, the guy that's helping her, uh, he just says, oh, go knock on the cockpit door. They'll give you everything. <laughs> that was so funny. <laughs> yeah. Different time, people. Different time <laughs> about cockpit security. It's which amazing. We'll, we'll, we'll see again in a moment how loose this cockpit security is. I mean, this was in our lifetime. Yeah. And it's astounding <laughs> how much this experience, the, the experience of flying has changed. So looking over the passenger manifest, she sees that she, uh, Fletcher sees that Greer bought her ticket just today. So only the people who bought their tickets today are likely to have been planning to steal her necklace. Um, so the jeweler is one of the passengers who bought his tickets today, but he's been searching. He doesn't have the necklace. But then she also notices that a stewardess, Kay Davis, made a last minute switch to be on this flight. Okay. So now the entire crew um, goes down to where the crew bags are kept and, uh, Miss Fletcher says, who's flying the plane? And the captain says, it's on autopilot. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, that works. <laughs> but it's interesting that she, that they, that they took the time to point that out. Yes. Yeah. But, uh, at the same time, you probably want someone in the cockpit. I'm guessing. That's probably policy by most airlines to have a human in the cockpit. So, uh, Kay Davis says that she switched her flight assignment so that she can meet up with an airline captain that she's been seeing. And when she says his name, the second stewardess is outraged and says that she meets up with that cap captain in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> 
But then inside of Kay's bag, Inspector pokes in, finds the stolen necklace, and Kay insists she didn't put it there, while the second stewardess just kind of gives her a contemptuous look. So it's like, yeah, right, you didn't put it there. Uh, then we cut to Miss Greer receiving the necklace back. Um... Though Kay Davis says, oh, look, I'm not a murderer. I didn't, I'm not a thief. I didn't do this. The jeweler pops back in and he looks at the necklace and says, this is a fake. And the Miss Greer looks at it more closely and says, you know what? The jeweler was right. This one is only a copy. So we're back onto the hunt for the real necklace and Polkson and Fletcher, they come it's to the It's funny knitter. that they just let Kay go though. Yeah. Yeah. They're just kind of by this. Like, She's oh, like, it's I, it wasn't me. And then they say, oh, this is a fake. And they're like, okay, you can go. Even yeah. though, like, she's for sure the, has to be the top suspect at this point. Yes, but uh, also, where is she going to go? They are in a plane. <laughs> I guess. Maybe she has a parachute. She could jump. Mm, good twist. Doesn't happen. So back <laughs> on to the hunt for the real necklace, and they come to the knitter, who's been behaving strangely this entire time. And they finally get her to give them her bag, and they open it up, and there's a dog inside of her knitting bag that they were trying to smuggle on their vacation with them. Uh, and then upstairs, back in the lounge, where the body isn't there anymore, so... <laughs> I, I I don't know why I got fixated on the location of this body and how it got from point A to B, but it's gone <laughs> from the lounge. Um, up there, uh, Pogson, he's having a drink, and he's kind of flirtatious when Fletcher comes up, and he asks her to dinner the next night, and she happily agrees. And then uh, he gets this list of all the tickets for all the airlines that are flying that day between Boston and London, and he sees that one passenger, an Otto Hardwick, actually had flights booked on several overlapping planes. Like, he he had multiple flights booked out of Boston to London. And they speculate that he knew Greer would be traveling, but he didn't know on what plane, so he booked tickets on all the flights. Uh, but now he's sitting way back in the smoking section. Uh, and so he's never really been next to the bodyguard or, or the chauffeur, so how did he steal the jewels? And then Fletcher, she remembers that Hardwick is the passenger that bumped into Leon and did the weird dance in the aisle. And so she speculates he may have stolen the jewels right then. So they go to check him out, and while they open up his carry-on bag, they Fletcher sees his electric razor, so she heard he's the one that uh, she heard in the bathroom, but then she also spots a can of shaving cream, and she says, if you have an electric razor, why do you need shaving cream so in a scene straight off jurassic park they unscrew yes. the bottom of the shaving cream bottle and find the original necklace and then uh hardwick knowing that he's caught he admits yes i killed him to steal the jewels and inspector pokes and says uh you know what i'm just gonna have to hold on to the jewels as evidence but miss greer will get those to you as soon as possible uh we and, and then he borrows some wool Yarn. from the knitter to tie up hardwick's hands behind his back doesn't seem like the most <laughs> long-term solution but that's what he does uh and so then the mystery solved everything is wrapped up end of the episode but wait it's not <laughs> because as the plane is coming in for landing fletcher is making an emergency phone call to scotland yard we don't quite hear what she says. Then, in the airport, Pokeson and Hardwick are stopped by the police. Pokeson just uses his badge to get by everyone, and he's heading out of the airport, but the police stop him, and Fletcher comes up, and she says, I'm on to you, Pokeson. Uh, you were part of this scheme all, of along, all along. Hardwick was on the plane to pickpocket the necklace and swap out the fake, and if that all went well... Hardwick and Pokeson would just get off the plane and split the money. But, as a backup, they said if Hardwick... Uh, if the switch gets realized, Pokeson is going to be there to pretend to capture the thief and then take him through all of airport security and customs, and they just run off together as soon as they're out of the airport. That was their plan, and Pokeson admits it. Uh, so now Pokeson and Hardwick are arrested, but this still leaves the question, who 
killed Leon because Leon's death really mucked up their plans. That was a wrench that they were not anticipating. And Hardwick admitted uh, to it only as an ad lib on the fly, figuring this is how I'll just get locked up by my friend who's really my accomplice. So I can admit to this and it won't even matter. We're going to get out with the jewels. Um, and then fortunately though, Fletcher has figured this part out as well. So she and the police go and stop Miss Greer. And they realized that Miss Greer had tampered with Leon's Walkman and then offered him a tranquilizer to calm him down, which was really an elaborate scheme. (laughs) Then uh, when he was out, she took the jewels out of his pocket and hid them in a crew member's back. Now, Todd, do you know why she did that? That part didn't make sense to me. No, there's the, the very end of this kind of loses its legs. (laughs) Right. Okay. So this, uh, yeah, this was the part where I'm like, why is she stealing the jewels and hiding them? And then that was unclear to me, and I was hoping you had caught some motivation there that I missed. Well, I, wait, there was some talk about it being sure. I thought that Hardwick had made the switch. Right. But she doesn't know that. Greer doesn't know this at this point. Oh, man. I'm really confused. Yes. Yeah, so this wait, is why, why makes... what they find is the fake jewels is because Hardwick had swapped out the real one for the fake ones when he bumped into Leon in the walkway. Okay. But, we gotta, we gotta walk through this. So Hardwick, the first thing that happens is Hardwick picks Leon's pocket and puts and in the fake, puts in the fake. And so now Hardwick has the real one. He goes and puts it in the Jurassic Park can. Yes. And that's why so he goes and shaves in now the bathroom Leon, as he's loading it. Leon into the can. has the fake jewels in his suit pocket. And Greer steals and Greer them out of his pocket that takes and puts out- it into the crew's bags. And I don't, I did do not that? understand why. Like, there's some talk about, are the jewels insured? So was she hoping they'd be taken? But it, it's it's still, that part doesn't connect for me. But anyway, let me finish out the, the big finale here. Uh, so oh, that makes no Greer sense at all. says that um, she poisoned Leon because she realized that Leon was not being faithful to her. Even though she is this glamorous movie star, uh, she realized that Leon was sleeping with another woman trying to secure a vice president position in a different company. If Leon had for- only known that she would be captaining the Enterprise... Yeah. My goodness. Well, and also, what a career move for Leon from moving from a chauffeur to a vice president. Yes. <laughs> in another company. Uh, but when confronted by the police, Greer admits this, and Fletcher has now solved a heist and a murder on one flight across the Atlantic. The end. Well done. Yes. Still that one sticky wicket about why Greer put the fake one into the cruise bag. But otherwise, it was just a fun episode. I thought it was charming. Yeah, so, I mean, we didn't... I don't know that we finished telling the story of this, but we were sitting uh, planning our schedule for this, and we knew we had a TV show coming up, and we just sort of said, Murder, She Wrote. Okay, have you ever seen it? No, me neither. All right, uh, let's check the internet and see what the best episode is. And this was this was rated as the best episode of Murder, She Wrote. Or one of the top. Yeah, it was, I think this and another one were, like, tied. So there's a website where you can uh, But we like look... this name, The Corpse That Flew First oh, Class. Oh, okay. Well, speaking of the names, I'm going to read off some of the names of some Murder, She Wrote episodes. <laughs> because there's just some great names. Uh, so, Hooray for Homicide. <laughs> Lovers and Other Killers. <laughs> we're Off to Kill the Wizard. <laughs> <laughs> Widow Weep for Me. I like this. Joshua Peabody died here. Possibly. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Possibly? Yes. Nice. Uh, hold on. I'm scrolling. There's a couple others I know I want to say. Uh, Christopher Bundy died on Sunday. So, nice little rhyme scheme nice. there. Um, oh, Corned Beef and Carnage. That's the one I really wanted. Oh, Corned Beef and Carnage? Wow. Corned Beef and Carnage. What a name for an episode. That's great. 
these are all in the first three seasons. <laughs> wow. And yeah, this one's the co- the corpse slew first ca- class, and we re- of the ones that were ranked at the top, we just liked that title of an episode best. We knew nothing about the episode or really the series, other than just kind of that it was a murder mystery show. I that it's Angela Lansbury. Yeah. Uh, but no, I I quite enjoyed it. I did too. So where do we go from here? Hold on. <laughs> some other good names here. <laughs> Who? <laughs> Sorry. Who threw the bar? <laughs> Take a deep breath. Yeah, producer Andrew, can you try to get to that without laughing? <laughs> Who threw the barbitals in Mrs. Fletcher's chowder? <laughs> That was hard. That was really hard. (laughs) Benedict Arnold slipped here. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Uh, Sorry. Uh, I should probably stop this, or I'm just going to keep throwing out random episode titles. That's usually my job, is is just to continue reading (laughs) random things. I saw one. Uh Oh, It was was (laughs) Alma Murder. (laughs) Oh, God. Okay. uh, Russia with blood? done yet <laughs> do i need to be done now i need to be done now okay well let me find one more worth reading out loud and then i'll be done oh, God. <laughs> close that tab yes uh where have you gone billy boy that's the last one where <laughs> okay. have you gone billy boy all right so all right. uh i have a couple of things that that stand out to me initially first of all um after after knowing like learning what this series was about castle uh feels less original to me <laughs> so okay well wait for it this epi- this show often gets compared to miss marple uh mysteries and they said no actually what happened is the producers of the show had the idea of doing a crime writer who solves mysteries and they tried to do it with a male protagonist and it was on air and failed after like six episodes and said you know what it's a good idea let's just switch it to a woman <laughs> and then it worked and then it worked and actually they, they said they uh they tried several women and then they heard angela lansbury would be interested but they like they said like, she, no she would have been way. at the top of our list, but we never thought she'd do a TV show. <laughs> yeah, and she, then she she did a couple of murder of of, uh, of Agatha Christie things, and then mentioned somehow somewhere that she would be interested in doing it. And they were like, "Well, I guess it's worth a try," <laughs> and it worked out pretty well for all of them. But uh, I, I'm I'm fascinated by this idea of the person who writes the murder mysteries being able to solve. Murder, mis- mur- murder mysteries. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that's interesting to me about this. Uh, the other thing that's interesting that I learned about as I was reading in the recesses of my mind is... Um, we'll have links to those recesses in the show. Yes. <laughs> is that this, uh, this film gave rise to a term that is called Cape Cabot Syndrome. Do you know about this? Is, uh, that's the city where she lives, right? Yes. Is this the idea that um, more murders took place than the entire population of the town? <laughs> yeah, basically, <laughs> it's the it's the idea of like incredible amounts of violence and murder happening in like remote rural small towns. When that's it, the setting for a murder mystery show. Yes, and I think this I just think it's interesting. Like uh, the, people have done calculations of like how many people died in. Cape Cabot in this little tiny town in Maine. <laughs> it, it would just be like, oh, and there are fans who have come up with a theory that that um, 
Jessica Fletcher is actually the murderess. <laughs> because she's the only thing that links all of the murders. Is that <laughs> she is the common element. That she's yeah, she's the common she's the common element, and so she's the one that's actually committed all of these murders. <laughs> I like Which that. I just think it's delightful. Yeah. Um no, I, I one of the only things I knew about murder she wrote is that um she was in a small town and that an incredible number of murders must take place in a small town for the show to <laughs> Yeah. Know, to, to keep telling these stories week after week. I mean, it's, I, I, I think it's interesting. But in it's part, also the reason why so many crime shows get set in New York City, right? Is the idea is, right. I, I've heard New York City called a contained infinity. Um, that, you know, it's interesting. There's any number of settings and, uh, you know, individuals and subcultures are all present within this radius that you could reasonably have a crime fighting force that, keeps coming up against all of these and yeah. other cities like small seaside towns in Maine don't actually offer that, even though a very successful show did it for 12 years. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's interesting how this, all of this plays into perception. Um, when I'm in Spain, people are just appalled at the violence in our country. And a lot of it stems from, from the, pop the fact culture that we export. Yeah. From the, from the, from the pop culture. That we have in which somebody is killed every so, week. And I like, did a, that's, that's the the whole premise. Well, I did some, lots of our most popular shows are somebody is killed every single week in one of our in one of our big famous cities, right? Yeah, I saw a um, uh, British. Uh, he's a comics book guy named Rich Johnson, but he, I, I saw him tweet out like, if an American network were to adapt the gospels would it involve Jesus and his disciples solving a crime every week? Probably <laughs> in, in Galilee. <laughs> um, but when I was in, uh, at Michigan state doing grad school, um, I showed the students a trailer for a new series that was going to be on. I want to say it was NBC, but it was called Detroit. And then some random numbers that was like the district or, you know, the, the police code for Detroit or whatever. But yeah. in this trailer, it, um, showed like, uh, there was a scene of a cop like bending down and picking up a bullet. He's like, no, this isn't the one from our crime scene. <laughs> like this, like there's just bullets <laughs> littering the street of Detroit. Yeah. And, um, I said like, what, like a lot of you are from Detroit and a lot of you are from Michigan. What is this? Like, what is your reaction to this? And all of them were like angry saying, that's not what Detroit is like. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, that's not the Detroit I know. That's not the Detroit I lived in. But at the same time we consume, a lot of these shows that say that's what New York is, and we just kind of say, well, yeah, that's New York. Uh -huh. um, obviously, it is, you know, a false narrative for New York City as well, but it is so pervasive in the culture that we consume that I think we do start, even if we're trying to resist it, we intake parts of it and, you know, to a level that's more so than if we weren't consuming these kinds of shows over and over as to what the level of violence is in, you know, the shows that we watch. Do you think that beyond beyond just perception of, of people from, from people outside of the U S um, do you think that it makes a difference for people inside the U S and does it impact us negatively to see this, just like this pervasive violence? Like, so I guess, what do you mean by impact negatively? Does it like impact our perception of New York that every crime show is set in New York and has those. So do we assume a certain crime level for New York? That's unrealistic. I'd say yes. Yes. So, there yeah, is, I don't mean like like morally are we a are we a degraded but is, society? Is it, is it affecting our perceptions even more so than we want to admit? I'd say yes. definitely. Like yeah. even those of us who are trying to resist it, it's still having an impact. 
Yeah. Okay. So there is like a psychological principle. I don't know if it's got a name. I just know it from a Ted talk. Um, but <laughs> our, our brains are wired to interpret like the representation of reality as the reality. And so uh-huh. when the news reports violence and murders and, and gang and crime and, and that sort of stuff, our brains establish that as the reality. So we think that's the actual, um, the actual ratio of good to bad is what gets reported in the news, you know? And so you'll get, you know, 29 out of 30 minutes of a news broadcast that are focused on negative things. And then, you know, one happy picture of puppies at the end, (laughs) but but and and your brain thinks that's the actual ratio of baby panda born at the zoo or something. Yeah. And so, and so your brain thinks that's the actual ratio of good to bad in the world when it's not, that's just, what one package prepackaged presentation of news showed yeah. us. And so if you if you get that much stimulus showing that kind of ratio, you will actually believe that the world is that bad. Yeah. yeah. And I mean there's I've made mentions before, there's a documentary called Killing Us Softly by Jean Kilborn. And in it she talks about advertising, which and she gives these statistics about the advertising industry in America, which are just staggering. You know, the billions of dollars that get spent on advertising, it's estimated that we're exposed to like 3,000 advertisements a day, um, just as average American citizens. Mm. And she says, universally, like when she talks about this and she talks about this with people, they say, well, yeah, but ads don't affect me. Like we think we are the resisting viewer. But yeah. if we were all really that resistant, would it be a multi-billion dollar industry? Right. No, like like every company that's investing that much would be bankrupt, and it's none just all of those them other, are. <laughs> all those other suckers. Yeah, but not me. And and if everyone's thinking that, we're all suckers. <laughs> we're all yeah. the other per- people suckers that are being influenced. Yeah, I think it's. Um, well, I've talked about this before, but I I think one of the one of the hardest things to do to be. We just read um Northanger Abbey in my humanities class, and we've been talking about being a good reader and what that means. And, um, and I think one of the things that good readers are able to do is they're able to look at a text and, and, and make it applicable to their own life instead of pointing at other people and saying, oh, other people are so dumb and they do all of these dumb things (laughs) to say, in what ways am I like this, this person? Or in what ways is my life like this person's life? And I think it's really hard, and I don't think we do it nearly enough. And, I mean, sometimes you just want to watch a, a story because you want to watch, you know, read a story or, or watch, a, watch a show. But I think it's really important to be able to do that. And I, I think we spend so much time projecting problems onto other people and not recognizing how in, impacted we are by, by things that we just assume only affect other people. I don't know if I've said that clearly, but no, and I, I think I'm sure there are numerous studies that could back this up. I could ask my wife about them and she'd probably tell me, but <laughs> we could just speculate. <laughs> well, that's, we're humanists, right? That's yeah. what we do. <laughs> don't bother me with numbers. <laughs> I read Northanger Abbey. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Everyone else doesn't, but I do. That's right. <laughs> Nobody else can see the world as clearly as I do, but, uh, but, but I certainly do. So. Um, so Todd, let's turn that question onto this episode of murder. She wrote, how in the world does this apply to us? (laughs) Well, I think one of the things that stood out to me as really interesting is the, 
for being a show about murder, this is not, it's not gritty or earthy, All right? right? So there, there's she's any number so, of... She is so likable and just kind and everyone's so polite and... And, and I'd like to see more episodes of this to see what, what the darker side of Murder, She Wrote is. This this doesn't feel like a very dark episode. And I would suspect that there are episodes in which darker things happen and we might see maybe see the darker side of humanity. But it doesn't – it seems more like just putting together a puzzle than it does an exploration of the, of the darker side of humanity. Right. So there's a few moments where you kind of see – um, maybe some thematic links to um, like the the darkness in humanity, or the, or the the du- the double sidedness of of people. Uh-huh. So there's the stewardesses where one of them says, "Well, I switched my shift so that I could be in London with this pilot," and the other one says, "Well, I see that pilot in Paris." <laughs> so you have um, you know this this two timing pilot. Uh, you have Leon is two timing Miss um, Greer. Uh-huh. Uh, you have the, uh, in the Scotland Yard inspector who is quite charming, but is actually a thief. Right. And, and I think you also, I, with, uh, within all of these, uh, these ideas of counterfeiting, you could throw in the necklace that like we got two versions of this necklace out there, sure. uh, as well. And then even like, I think you could I'd be comfortable saying Miss Greer is both the, you know, the victim and the murderer, you know, sure. she's, she, you got, you got two things going on, but even as. That's kind of an interesting idea, and and as I'm talking about it, I'm seeing it more than I even realized was in the episode. Yes. Uh, uh-huh. The episode doesn't feel like it's tackling that subject. No, it doesn't. It it feels. It just. I mean, we talked about how this is so obviously a different era, in which you know the guy's banging on his Walkman, <laughs> and there's the spiral staircase going up. Everybody's eating these and lavish the, the pilot meals. Just pops out. Pilot pops out. Oh yeah, no problem. He just comes out and and mingles with the people in first class. And I mean, it feels like a different era, but it feels like a different kind of murder show, uh, in which everyone is extremely polite, and even the murderer, the guy or the guy that um that's the thief at the end, the Scotland Yard guy, that. That it, he's kind of trying to schmooze her, uh-huh. and he's inviting her to dinner, and she says yes, and it's kind of cute to see this sort of middle-aged, I don't want to say romance, but like, well, it's it's uh, the actors doing this are of an age that Hollywood doesn't really show often. A lot yeah, we of don't magic. often see. I mean, we we talked about what just recently about you know, men that it seems can only have amorous relationships with women that are decades younger than they are. And here we just see a a really kind of matter of fact, like flirtation happening between these, these two people. And it's, and it's nice. And then in the end he gets caught and she's like, aha, I caught you. And the police come and he like just kind of winks at her. And I'm like, you just got busted for stealing a two million, a two million dollar necklace, a two million dollar necklace, and he's just like, "Nah, it's fine." You know, I'll see you, and I'll see you when I get out or whatever. It was just, it was like very, I don't know. It it, it wasn't uh, often what you see in in other shows is when somebody finally comes clean. There's all this emotion and and oh you did this and they did that and, and, and it becomes like this really emotionally charged thing. And there, it, there just didn't seem to be a ton of emotion in this at any point. 
Yeah. Uh, Maybe at the very end, Greer, I mean, Greer tries to show some emotion at some, at some points, but it didn't feel like really emotionally charged. No. Um, and it's interesting to say that because like when you're dealing with, you know, people being sent to jail and murder, you expect that hyper emotionality. But I, I wanted to say like the, um, the initial conversations between Jessica Fletcher, like in the, in the airport lounge with Jessica Fletcher and, uh, and Poxon, Poxon, however it's said in the show, I can't remember, it's P-O-G-S-O-N. I looked it up, it's how it's written, but, uh-huh. uh, like, I thought that was just some really well-written and well-acted dialogue. Like, yeah. the interactions they had was more real than anything we saw in Batman v Superman, as an example, <laughs> <laughs> as to, like, how to humans interact with each other. And so that felt real, but, like, in the climax, uh, we already mentioned there's some plot issues with the climax that didn't quite connect for us, but there's also this lack of uh, really feeling of consequence right? Um, to, to, you know, someone being arrested and having this plot that they've obviously been planning. And for, you know, minimum of a week, they had someone tailing Miss Greer right. and they had a duplicate made, you know, a, a, a forgery made. So there's a lot of time and effort that went into this and it's just gone up in flames around them. And both, uh, what's the other name? Hardwick and, yeah. and Poxon, they're, both pretty okay with it <laughs> just gonna say yeah you caught us and so that even- yeah it really is this kind of like wah wah you got us and then and then it ends it's just so different it's so different from the kind of murder shows that were that that i'm used to seeing and i've seen seen a lot of them and it just seems like a lot of the stuff that's coming out now is is all about these introspective like emotional emotionally kind of wrecked people and this was just this really charming lady who met a really charming guy and then like oh how lucky we are to have a murder that we can solve together and and they go around there's all kinds of red herrings and they they kind of work through each one and it, and it's just it's just so charming and charming is not a word that i'm used to uh using to describe my my detective shows. And so I don't, how much I mean, of that I, I'm is... thinking about things like Broadchurch and Wallander and yeah. I mean like really intensely emotional, like dark things that really explore the dark sides of humanity. And this was just not that. And I don't think it's just saying, oh, this was a different time. Because in the 80s and 90s, that's when you get uh, Hill Street Blues and NYPD Blue and uh-huh. shows that are very much, you know, veering us into things like Broad Church. Or, uh-huh. um, and, and, I, and so I don't think it's just the time. I think it's just the tone for this particular show yeah. and what they've chosen to do. And like you said, this is more about uh, the puzzle than necessarily... Uh, you know, the motivations or, or, you know, a, a, a human character study. Yeah. It, it's about, uh, the fact that you think you've solved the puzzle, but then there's actually a second puzzle and then there's actually a third puzzle, you know, beyond that, that's where like the enjoyment of the show comes from. Yeah. And, and it's, I just can't, I can't get away from these words like charming and delightful <laughs> and, and, it and really it's very is. bright. Uh, uh-huh. like it, it's a very well lit first class cabin, which mm-hmm. um like we've already compared the show to Castle, like Castle's all the time in New York in dark apartments and nighttime, you know, outside on the streets. Right. Uh and, and so just like visually there's a different uh emotionality that comes from the way the show is being shot and lit. Yeah. And and 
Um, I mean, this is a bottle episode. You're trapped in first class, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it just feels, you know, despite that, you don't feel claustrophobic at all. Um, even though there's, you know, a murder that just happened, you know, next to all these people, it still feels like a, you know, a fairly normal atmosphere uh-huh. <laughs> there in first class. Um, and I think that it makes an interesting, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you know, comparison when you deal with some of the, you thinking about the themes that are there versus this presentation that is, yes, this is a murder. Yes, this is, you know, there's all these double dealing individuals on uh-huh. this, on this flight, but it's presented with this tone and all these tricks of television filmmaking that make it feel very safe and very, yeah. uh, very pleasant. Yeah, as some unpleasant things are actually taking place. And I think maybe that's one reason why this works so well is that you get this interesting mix happening. Uh, and, and it's a mix that we don't have as much today. I mean, Castle is a comedy show that's set with murder, but the tone and the, and the way it's presented to us is often veering into the darker and you get these moments of humor coming from Castle. This uh. was, uh, an overall lightness that has a few moments of some darkness. Yeah, and this is why I say I would like to see more of this because my image, the image in my head from being a little kid and 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 seeing Murder, She Wrote on TV is like Angela Lansbury walking through like caverns with a candle and it was very scary and, I, and that, that's why I didn't want to watch it. Todd, because- are you sure you're not mixing this up with Pirates Penzance? <laughs> now that's a show that we need to do on this podcast. Uh, I think she walks around with a candle at night in that one. <laughs> through, no, I really do summer. think that it was. I really do think that it's it's this show that I'm thinking of. But um, so I wonder how much of it is this show as a show, and how much of it is just this, this one episode? episode. Yeah, and I'm sure that we have listeners that could that could fill us in a little bit better on on how much of this is 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 just this one episode. I wonder, is this, is it just a relic? Is it something that, that spoke to people in the eighties that, that doesn't speak to us anymore or like, I wish, I mean, Netflix does not release any data at all, but I wish I could know like, how often is the show getting streamed? <laughs> on, I think it's, on Netflix. I've seen it high up on lists of like most viewed or, or trending now or something. I've seen it high on those lists. Mm-hmm. And I just, I don't know. I, I, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what to make of it. I really enjoyed it. Um, but I don't feel, I don't feel super drawn. Like, Oh, I need to go watch tons more episodes of this. Like I don't right. feel emotionally invested in it. Like I do, uh, with a show like Broadchurch, which is, I mean, one of the best like detective I think shows. Last time we talked about this, recently. you haven't yet watched Broadchurch, so you've done that one now. No, I've seen Broadchurch. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's so emotionally, like you become so emotionally invested in that show. Mm-hmm. I don't think I could even watch it a second time. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I'm with you on that. Um, but I think one reason that we get that with that show is like these characters have arcs that go from one episode to the next. And again, we need to see more, but I don't know how much Jessica Fletcher is going to change through the course of, right. You know, murder. She wrote, um, I mean, clearly she may have some romantic, <laughs> you know, attachments, yeah. uh, like, like uh castle or bones, which we've talked about in previous episodes. They both have like long-term character arcs that, that shift and evolve 
is that going to be what happens on Murder, She Wrote, or is this just episodic? I mean, the show's wrapped. We could go find out, but it is something <laughs> that from this one episode, it feels like it just might be episodic mysteries. Sure. Uh, without necessarily an evolving through line uh, of the main characters. Uh, I guess we're kind of getting towards the end. So I did want to ask, from this episode, how would you define Jessica Fletcher as a character? Like, uh, uh, It clearly is more focused on the fun of solving this mystery than it is on showing any you know, real character growth in this one episode, but for what we got, how would you try and fight her? I, I would say like charming. (laughs) Again, I mean, that's our, our, if anyone does a drinking game, (laughs) they listen to protagonists. I hope you do not choose the word charming for this episode. For this episode. Yeah. (laughs) But, but really, I mean, she's just, she's, and I mean, and I think there are different ways of, of thinking about how, it, how is she charming? She's charming in that, um, she's kind. She's, she's charming in the way that she, she interacts with, uh, Pokeson. Um, she's, she just is very helpful to the people around her. And I don't, I don't get loads of like emotional depth from her. Uh, I don't see any real, uh, like dynamism in her as a character. I think she's, she, she's sort of is who she is. Um, and I like her as a character, but I'm not, I don't feel invested in her. I don't feel interested in seeing how, you know, like what will happen in the next episode. Mm -hmm. I think it will probably be somebody gets murdered. And she happens to be some somewhere around there, and then bold prediction from murder she wrote. <laughs> Somebody gets murdered. She happens to be in the vicinity, and she helps to solve the solve the murder. And so I like her, but I don't feel blown away by the show, or or like I'm dying to go and see what happens next. Yeah. Um, I think for me, what was most revealing about her character, it wasn't her kind of flirtatious fun with, with Pokesin or even that, the intelligence she showed in, uh, being the one who, who picked through, uh, or picked up on a lot of these clues. It was her interaction with the film producer that's sitting next to her. Yeah. That has this horrible script that he's panicked about and he wants her, she, he realizes she's an author and he wants her to look it over and try and punch it up <laughs> on yeah. this flight. And, we have all like seen the scenes and we've probably been in the scenes of having an annoying person sitting next to you uh, when you're trapped on <laughs> transportation of some kind. But she's so good to him. And she, you can tell at first she's like, this is, you're not my kind of guy and this is not my kind of project. But she says, I'll look it over. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and she does read it. It's not like even just the, oh, sure, I'll do that. Like we see her actively reading through the script in the episode. I love what she says at the very end. Do you remember this? <laughs> yes, where uh, she like gives the script back to the guy and she throws it around like really artsy-fartsy terms about... <laughs> yeah, she says, this is great. This would be a perfect art house film. And it's so deep and all of this character development and stuff. And the guy goes, this is garbage. Well, he just basically says, like, this is not my kind of film then. Like, if that's what you right. found with this, this is not my kind of film. Which he probably needed to hear. Like, he was already <laughs> panicked about the script. This was just kind of the push over the edge to say, this project isn't working. You should probably bail out before you d- drop more money into it. Yeah. But it, but, but again, she's, she finds a soft way to deliver the blow. To let this guy know this is, this isn't worth it for, you know, what you're doing. I, I really liked her. I mean, I, she's the kind of person, like when we have visitors and we say, who would you invite to a dinner party? I would totally invite her to a dinner party. <laughs> She's amazing. 
I mean, she's kind and she's she's perceptive. She's perceptive. She's elegant. She's eloquent. Um, she would be a very interesting person to to just be with and like, you know, go go get a bite to eat with or a drink or something. Um, she's awesome. <laughs> I really like her. And, uh, you know, I would way rather have her at dinner than, uh, Kurt Wallander or what's the guy's, <laughs> what's the guy's name? David Tennant. I don't remember David Tennant's David name Tenet. in, in Broadchurch. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's a total mess. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was cool. Um, we said at the beginning, you kind of said once you got more to this and, uh, you said castle, felt less special, I guess, uh, after finding out more about Murder, She Wrote. How do you think this compares to Castle? I mean, this is basically two decades of difference from when these went on the air, right? Yeah, I mean, I I don't I don't want to be, like, tautological or, or just, like, assume that everything that's newer is better mm-hmm. because just because it's newer. And I don't think that's always the case. I do think that um, as far as like my own sensibilities are concerned, I would say that Castle probably speaks to me on a, on a deeper level. I feel more emotionally invested in Castle, those characters and those arcs. I've also been watching Castle since basically the first season or the second season. I like the, I like the mixture of humor and, and darkness in Castle. Um, I like the emotional depth and, uh, and the, the change in the characters over time. Um, and so for, for one episode, we absolutely can't say whether there is, yeah, absolutely. You know, you know what, uh, we don't even know who supporting characters are in murder. She wrote, I've said this, you know, probably 15 times in different ways. It just, it felt different to me. It, it was enjoyable, but I didn't feel hooked. Like I've got to keep going with this. If I watched another, if somebody said, "Hey, you want to watch an episode of Murder She Wrote?" I would say, "Yeah, absolutely, let's do it. It's awesome." Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to like go binge watch four episodes tonight because I can't. I can't wait to see what happens next. Yeah, um, and I think in a and I've I, done that with Castle on multiple occasions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I think this um, this one feels like a pleasant diversion uh, yeah. more than. Like you said, a driving narrative. And again, this is a single episode. So listeners, feel free to tell us we're wrong and let us know that there's some really good <laughs> character arcs. Uh, we, we've never seen a single episode before this one that we watched for tonight. But I, I could see myself sometimes thinking, I could use a pleasant diversion and going back and pulling up Murder, She Wrote on sure. Netflix. Um, but it wouldn't be the same kind of drive that you get when, you know, a season of 24 where it's all building towards this big climax or there's, you know, the long-term underlying threat uh, that, you know, that maybe is in a season of Bones or the, uh, you know, will they, won't they romance that drives Castle, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I wonder if, if the state, if where we are right now is the next step of evolution and that we'll never look back and have just kind of quaint episodic shows where you can sit down and watch an episode and it's self-contained and it's, and it's fine. Uh, I wonder if we're permanently in the stage of long arc, emotionally complex characters, uh, or if, if the pendulum will swing back and in 15 years we'll be, we'll be back in an era where we, we just want more, uh, right. 
more diversion and less like soul searching. So, so when this show came on in the eighties, like there was literally no guarantee if you missed an episode, you'd ever be able to watch it again. Right. <laughs> uh, which is one reason why, uh, like the original Star Trek series and, and even Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, you know, there it's one episodes, ones and nones storylines, basically. Sure. Uh, that was because the means of accessing these episodes was, will you catch the rerun after you've missed this one? And so right. if you're doing a multi-episode arc, viewers get angry sometimes <laughs> because, yeah. uh, because they might miss the middle chapter because life happens. And uh, like when the show started, you know, VCRs weren't even common to be able to record shows. Right. Uh, and, and so it definitely was from a business uh, and uh, an industry perspective, just such a different era besides like we've mentioned some tonal things that are odd as far as like how airplane travel works <laughs> between the sure. 1980s and the post 9-11 America. There's just a business model that's wildly different from that era versus what we have today, where it's all about, uh, you know, multiple modes of access to every single show that you want to watch. If you're willing to, right. you know, t- to pay for it, you're going to be able to find it and, and gain access to it. And with Netflix, the whole model is built around the idea of binging these shows back to back to back to back. And so they want, the the threads that keep you saying, I just finished this episode, I have to watch the next one. And that's just not the model of TV history up through the 90s. But it's hard, it's hard when you're in the moment to imagine things being any other way. It feels so natural that, I mean, uh, who wouldn't want characters that are that are emotionally complex and deep and struggling with things? So it's so gripping. It's uh, why would we ever do anything any differently? Uh, but things change and economic models change and technology for delivery changes. And sometimes those changes aren't always in the directions that we, that we think they would be. And I mean, I think of like, like 19th century serial novels that came out every week and they were able to carry long, long character arcs and bring characters in and then send them out and, and do all kinds of interesting things in that medium. And then, and then TV came along and it was, it was a really cool new medium, but they couldn't do the same kind of things that they were doing with the written word because it was a different medium and they, and it had limitations. And so the, 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 the means of storytelling changed. And, and I know that it's hard to imagine given, given the technology that we have now and the means for delivery and consumption that we would ever that we would ever change what we're doing but but i don't know what the next step is and when you know when vr comes becomes popular or well, i mean i mean i don't know how significantly this means of distribution has changed the style of episodic television like we're still dealing with hour-long mysteries yeah but the style the means of, of distributing and consuming it between the 1980s and today has changed so much that literally the stories we tell, even though it is an hour long episodic mystery have changed. Yeah. Uh, so what is the next thing that's going to cause a similar change? I'm getting a wrap up sign from our producer, Andrew. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know what that thing is, but, but I, I'm not convinced that this, that, that we are on like an, an a never ending trajectory or like evolution I think that if you look at the history of art and, and, and narrative and the way that people have told stories, I think you see things in kind of fits and starts and you see trends that look like they're going to be the end all be all that end suddenly because technology changes and that those things are really, really hard to predict. 
And I think we should never assume the way we have it now is the way it's going to be. <laughs> or that it's the best way. Mm-hmm. Even though we get so much enjoyment out of out of the stuff that we're that we're into right now, there's no reason why something couldn't come along tomorrow that's maybe really different from what we're consuming today that brings us a different kind of enjoyment. And we would look back and say, man, do you remember when we were all so depressed and we thought Broadchurch was the coolest thing ever? Like, <laughs> that was the worst. That show was so sad. And, and I'm so glad that I'm out of that phase, you know? But right now that we're in it, we're like, oh, man, this is the best. It's all about Broadchurch and Breaking Bad and, like, I don't know. I just think it's interesting. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode. Thank you for joining us, listeners. Please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes and leave us a review. And you can find a link to everything that we talked about and referenced at protagonistpodcast.com and see also a list of all of our previous shows there. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections, which we asked for in this episode, by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com or leaving a comment under facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. There'll be a link to this episode. So if you are the Murder, She Wrote fan that can tell us uh, whether it's all episodic or if that there's we're all, some we're long totally threads, wrong. <laughs> go ahead and let us know at facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. You can follow all of us on Twitter at Todd K. Mack, at Jay Dorowski, at protagonistpod, and our producer Andrew is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And if you would like to support us, this is the month to do so. We are in April and this is coming out, and in April we're giving a deal where you can buy uh, some extra uh, or at cheaper rates, you can buy the topics for us to discuss if you go sign up at patreon.com slash protagonist for three dollars if you're a new patron you'll be able to buy a uh, topic for us to discuss and existing uh patrons if you up your ante a little bit well, you'll be able to give us a uh, another topic or two for us to tackle in future episodes of the protagonist podcast so please uh do that and also don't forget to sign up for a 30-day free trial of audible.com at audibletrial.com slash protagonist Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back again next week to discuss a great character and a great story. So long. So long. She is a murder uh, writer. writer? Uh, uh, sorry. <laughs> she writes murder mysteries. Better. <laughs> and and uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let me try that one more time.